All right, the scripture reading this morning is going to be from the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open there. Philippians chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 7. And here we've got the introductory uh, remarks to the, the Philippians and then the beginning of Paul's prayer. Beginning with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, uh, about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in, the, in my the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. All right. Good morning, church. Good to see everybody, whether we're out here on the lawn or on Zoom. Everybody hear me on Zoom? Good. Well, today, uh, and maybe, maybe next week, I'm thinking about this for next week as well, I want to talk about uh, what it is that binds us together. What it is that binds us together. What it is that we have in common that um, uh, helps us to see ourselves as one. Um, it's, it's really great to be together uh, out here today. I know all of us feel this way, especially after uh, being physically apart from each other for so long. And our gratitude over getting to be together probably would help us um, or help a passage like the one Greg just read, Philippians chapter 1, uh, the opening of Paul's letter to Philippi. It would probably help that resonate uh, for us uh, more now um, than before, you know, Corona, when we could sort of take being together for granted. I mean, Paul, this is a very positive toned letter. It's kind of the opposite of 1 Corinthians, which has a reprimand in every paragraph. There, there's a lot of uh, good, there's a lot of affection and compassion and mutual joy you can just feel coming through the words of Paul in Philippians. Uh, he's writing from prison and he profusely thanks God for the Philippian Christians. He remembers them with joy, verse 4. I remember you in my prayers with joy. He commends the Philippian Christians for, for sharing in his suffering with them. And he prays that their Christ-like love, this exemplary love that they've been showing to each other and even other churches, might, quote, abound more and more, chapter 1, verse 9. Now, given the culture of Philippi and the gospel's unpromising beginning there, it's kind of remarkable uh, that it took hold in Philippi. Culturally, this town was very Roman, which is another way of saying very pagan in a, Rome, in a particularly Roman kind of way. Originally, it had been a Greek city. It was named for Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Um, but it had become a Roman city um, as time went by. Um, there was a famous battle that happened here in uh, 42 BC when uh, the guy who would become the Emperor Augustus, known as Octavian at that point, and Mark Antony, they actually defeated the assassins of Julius Caesar in 42 BC at the Battle of Philippi. But it, 
it was rebuilt by Augustus, who had become uh, the emperor of Rome, and it becomes a very Roman city. When, when archaeologists go through the ruins of Philippi, they find mostly inscriptions in Latin, not in Greek, even though it's way over on the Greek side, the Hellenistic side of the Mediterranean. It's got Latin public inscriptions everywhere. Uh, uh, scholars have found that the emperor cult, the cult of the emperor of Rome, was, very, uh, was thriving there about the time of Paul. Um, they held Roman gladiatorial games in the old Greek theater that had been part of the original city. And, maybe above all, Philippi had a special status as a Roman colony. Rome had a lot of dominions, a lot of vassal states that it had conquered. Not all of them were colonies. That was a special, it had a less negative sound than it would today when you talk about colonial or post-colonial, which usually means imperialistic or something. This means they have a special status, special privileges, legal and financial advantages, tax exemptions, things like that. And Luke, who wrote Acts, actually mentions this special status back in Acts 16, when he's talking about the gospel first coming to Philippi. He says that Paul and his company left from Troas. Remember, they seen the Macedonian vision to take the gospel into Europe. And so uh, they, cross, uh, they cross the sea and they go to Philippi that Luke describes as a leading city and a Roman colony. He doesn't say that about all the other places they go. He, he takes the time to specify that. That's interesting. Uh, I don't think there's any throwaway language in the Bible. He, he specifies. It has this special status as a Roman colony. Um, and the first convert, if you recall, was an immigrant or a, maybe a traveling salesperson. It's hard to tell. A woman from Turkey by the, uh, by the name of Lydia. He goes out to the riverside, and, and she's converted, and others are. And then Paul is thrown into jail by the owners of a, of a slave girl um, from whom Paul and Silas had exercised a spirit of divination. Not sure what exactly that was, but they were able to monetize her, these owners of this little slave girl, and get money from her fortune-telling or something like that. And so now they've lost the ability to exploit her for money, and so they drag Paul and his company before the city magistrates, and they incite a mob to attack Paul, which they do. And I want you to notice with me, and we don't have any visual aid here, so hopefully you've got a Bible, the old way. We're going old school today. Flip over to Acts 16. Um, uh, I'll, be getting, I'll be down in verse 20. And I want you to notice the way uh, that these, uh, these slaveholders, these slave owners, um, sort of rally up a charge against Paul. It says that they say to the magistrates, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They're appealing to their Romanness. In other words, there's a Roman way of life. There are certain Roman uh, mores or um, you know, ways, manners, manner of living that, that they're violating. They're, they're, they're bringing something foreign in here. And we're basically protecting our way of life against these encroachers, um, these people who've brought something foreign in. And so it says they give orders to beat them with rods, and that's what this mob does. Okay? Beating up some people in the name of saving civilization. How many times has that happened in history? About every single generation. It's going on right now, honestly. Um, sometimes we beat each other up verbally. Sometimes we do. Um, they reject his message, and they, they, uh, they attack his person. 
Now he'll he's thrown in jail. He will uh, be divinely liberated from from this particular jail, but he would be arrested again. In fact, is in prison when he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And its text indicates that the Philippian Christians were being persecuted as well. It's not just Paul. He says, you're sharing in my suffering. And maybe, we don't know how, why, but it's, it's probable that they're being persecuted because they've embraced a way of life that doesn't square so well with the Roman way of life. Because Philippi is very self-consciously Roman. Um, they sort of wear it on their sleeve. So my question for this morning is, what was it that so bound the Christians of Philippi to one another and to Paul? Where did that bond come from? It wasn't something that on paper looked probable at the outset, considering the culture of Philippi and the inauspicious beginning of the gospel there, complete with beatings and prison sentences and so on. What was it? that so bound these Christians together. What is the thing, or what should be the thing, that binds us together? Here's Paul's answer. It's in Philippians 1, verse 5. Philippians 1, verse 5. Let me see if I can find Philippians still, without Google searching. Philippians 1, verse 5, he says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work, that's, sorry, that's verse 6, he says, uh, he makes his prayer with them for joy, verse 5, quote, because of your partnership in the gospel. Your partnership in the gospel. Anybody here today with the King James Version? Nobody? The King James Version says your fellowship in the gospel. And this is the Greek word koinonia, sometimes translated communion or partnership or joint participation or sharing or fellowship. It's just the idea of Several people having something in common that brings them together. And that's what he says the thing in common was for these people. And it should be what pulls us together. Our partnership in the gospel. Our fellowship in the good news. He says down further in verse 7, You are all partakers with me. And that's the word joint participants. It's a form of koinonia with a little prefix in front of it. So you're, you're, people, you're fellow shippers, you might say joint participants, sharers in grace. So he says, what brings us together is the gospel, which is another way of saying grace, right? That's our glue. That's our glue. Grace, the good news about God's grace, is the glue that unites us and holds us together. I mean, every human being is a sinner, and so every human being desperately needs grace. I mean, this is the sickness for which the cross is the remedy. Doesn't make much sense to talk about how you love the cross and you love when you got saved and here's how you get saved if you dismiss grace and your sin because your sin is the sickness for which grace, for which grace and the cross are uh, the cure. And, and most people in the world resist this diagnosis. It's too... It's too humiliating. It's too humbling. They prefer to maintain their, their fiction of success or, or of control, being in control of their life and having their stuff together, or the fiction of their goodness, their inherent goodness. But you know what a Christian is? A Christian is a person who freely acknowledges their failure. A person who embraces their failure and lays it at the cross of Jesus. 
there's a sense in which every Christian is a loser. You know, we need to have a little symbol, like, is that an L or a backwards L for you? Uh, backwards. Um, we need to have a symbol of the loser, but then across things. Somebody probably has already done that 15 years ago or something. We think we're winners. And, and ultimately we are, but we only win on the coattails of, of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are people who acknowledge that we have failure, but we put that at the feet of Jesus as he hangs from the cross of Calvary. I mean, this is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount of all orations so counterintuitively. Who among us, what rabbi in the first century would have begun the Sermon on the Mount, which has been called the Constitution of Kingdom Living, by pronouncing blessing on those who are poor and those who are meek. Just this week, Randy, Rand I, not Rand Y, Randy Fox sent uh, Shri and me um, uh, a tip on some good, good music, a guy named John Guerra, uh, John Guerra, Guerra, I don't know how he, how he pronounces his name, but um, I downloaded the album, and there's a song on there called Kingdom of God, and he has this lyric in there. I think it really captures the essence of what it means to be a Christian, at least square one in that process. He says, blessed are the poor who have nothing to own. Blessed are the mourners who are crying alone. Blessed are the guilty who have nowhere to go, for their hearts have a road to the kingdom of God. And nobody else does have a road. Those of us who pretend we're winning, or we're in power, or we're in control, or we're good, we're the good guys. That's a dangerous place to be if the whole thing begins with being impoverished in your spirit and crying out to God and giving him your failure with full acknowledgement of it. When you and I accept the gospel, what we're agreeing to, folks, is, is that we're going to see ourselves and define ourselves in the, the light of the gospel. We're going to accept its evaluation of us, that we are hopeless sinners, that we are weak, that we're rudderless. It's a renunciation of the myth that we're the good guys. But here's what else the gospel says about us. That's one half of it. The other side is that God has utterly cleansed us. He loves us out of his own nature, as Sean just said, and he has accepted us. We're like homeless beggars who are suddenly given the best room in the king's glorious palace. And that's where we get to live. But we're beggars. We didn't earn it. We, we remain beggars, but we're very blessed beggars. And so both sides of that, the humility and the glory, are our gospel identity. And this is what binds us together. Our fellowship is, quote, in the gospel, Philippians 1.5. Our fellowship is to jointly participate in the grace of God, Philippians 1, verse 7. And that's what pulls us together. That's what holds us together. That's the glue. So think about this. Think about how diverse Christians are. I mean, we've got some diversity in our church. I wish we had way more. There's lots of different kinds of diversity. So we still have people who are from different places and have different backgrounds. But however diverse Christians are, and God's church universal is, this utter dependence upon God's grace is the great common denominator, isn't it? No matter your race or your gender or your class, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or don't care, whether you're rural or urban, an immigrant 
or the descendant of an immigrant. Basically, America. Doesn't matter. Sin is the great leveler. Nothing more, de more democratic than sin. All have sinned. And so the gospel says about us that we're all in the same boat. That's what the gospel says. You can't say I accept the gospel and not accept its analysis of you, its assessment of you. Here's what it says. It says, human being, we're all in the same boat. All of you are in the same boat, and that boat is sinking fast, and you don't have a pail. You have no hope apart from Christ's saving work on the cross. But man, does that work save us. And so this grace, this gospel, this good news binds us all together with a new identity. However much diversity we have, that's our common identity in Christ. One more thing, though, and then we're going to maybe pick up on some of this next week, Lord willing. I don't know whether we'll be here or back at home or, or, or what, but so we'll see. Um, this new collective identity in Christ also entails a new manner of life. So I want to pick up a text, the text again in Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27. He says, only let your manner of life, maybe your version says your way of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am, am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by your opponents. There is nothing like fear, anxiety, social, culture, national tension, to cause Christians to stop, to read the cross. They still claim the symbol of the cross. And they're still talking the word Jesus and dropping that right and left. And they got the bumper stickers and the jewelry and singing the songs and going to church maybe. But, but the ethic, the mentality, the mind of Christ, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, that can go out the door lickety split when we're fearful. He says, when you're fearful, I want to hear that your manner of life still exhibits that you are one united in the gospel, in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so our new collective identity built around the cross entails a new manner of life. And so when I hear Christians signing up so quickly and so indiscriminately and so carelessly to just fight in the culture wars of America, which history and wrongheaded thought and news networks and everybody under the sun has created, that didn't come out of the Bible. That's a mixture of some truth and a whole lot of fear and suspicion and anger and hatred and prejudice and all kinds of bad stuff. Don't get your theology from the news. Get it out of here. Get it from the cross. And so when I personally hear Christians signing up so quickly to fight in the culture wars for, quote, our way of life, you ever heard that? Oh, we're protecting our way of life, our heritage. What they often seem to mean is their American way of life. Several problems with that. First one is that's a lot of things to a lot of people. There's not one American life. Some folks need a history class on this, honestly. But the more basic, fundamental, and biblical problem is they're focused on the wrong way of life. Rome also had a way of life, didn't it? Rome had a way of life. It had its cultural and social ways and conventions that they found comfortable, that they found their identity in. And Paul reminds these Christians in this Roman colony of Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven, he says in Philippians 
You may be a Roman colony, but there's something else making a claim on your culture, your way of life, your mind, your mentality, the way you think and act and feel. Paul is talking about a different way of life when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let it be defined by grace, by the cross. The way of life exemplified by Jesus, who willingly went to that cross. Imagine this, the all-powerful God, King of kings and Lord of lords, renouncing pride and power for humility and selfless suffering by choice. We need to make sure that our attitudes and our actions and our social media rhetoric and our social media rhetoric and our social media no, I'm not stuck. I actually meant that three times. Sound more like self-emptying than they do power grabbing, even if it's the name of Jesus. Because if it's power grabbing, if it's control seeking, it doesn't look very much like the cross anymore, right? We need to sound and, and act more like the way of the cross and less the way of the sword. The way of love, not the way of coercion. You know, folks, it's possible for Christians to have false sources of identity. It's possible even for religious people to have an identity built around something other than the cross. Paul warns the Philippians over in chapter 3 against enemies of the cross of Christ, whose functional God is their own appetite. Well, I want my way of life. Well, that's fine. That sounds pretty selfish. Your way of life. How about the way of life God told us to have? He gave you your life. But no, the functional God, whatever the religious rhetoric, however many times the word Christian is slapped at the bottom of the Facebook post, or however many bumper stickers adorn the car, if my functional God is my appetite and my mind is still operating according to an earthly logic, Paul says in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, I am an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's what he says. More on that next week. I'll, next week, I, or whenever we can do this, I, I kind of need, you know, it's a little thick for this, but I kind of need PowerPoint for this. But I want us to explore why it is these false, from a Christian standpoint, alien sources of identity function so powerfully in our lives. And how can we really have a Christian identity? And by that, I mean a cross-shaped identity. Because that's what Paul points them to in Philippians 2 when he says, have this, don't seek your own way. He says, man, don't look each of you to his own interest, but look to the interest of others. You know, the word only isn't even in that verse. That's interpolated. Your version may, may italicize it. And the word uh, look also, that can be translated rather. A better translation of this is, let each of you look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. The cross means self-emptying. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself or made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a slave, being found in the likeness of men, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. 
That's the manner of life, manner of thinking, evaluating, posting, talking, interacting at home, interacting in the community. That's the ethic of Jesus. And that should be our gospel identity. So let me just say today as we close that when I read that first opening paragraph of Paul, I've read that a million times in my life, but just after what we've been going through separate from each other for so long, I just want you to know that I'm, I, I share with the Apostle Paul not many things. Uh, i got a long way to go, of course. You know that. But I do share with him this great gratitude to share life with a group of Christians, and I'm talking about y'all and the folks on Zoom, who are ever striving. We're not there yet. We may never get there, but we're ever striving to fathom the depth and the beauty and the hope of the cross of Christ. Amen? Thanks a lot, folks.